Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Shomit Ghosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Kyle Poyar on the show. Kyle is currently an operating partner at OpenView and the writer of Growth Unhinged on Substack, which is one of my favorite weekly reads. In this episode, we're going to cover all things product-led growth, pricing, and strategies to grow your SaaS business. So welcome to the show, Kyle. Thanks for having me on, Shomik. So let's start with your background. Where's your career start and how'd you end up at OpenView? Yeah, I did not go to school with product-led growth and VC in mind. That's probably an understatement. I was actually an environmental studies major in college, believe it or not. But then, like many folks do, decided I should try to figure out a real career path. It's so cut a job in consulting. Spent six years in consulting, ended up really loving the work, the complexity of the problems I was faced with, the opportunity to take on really a lot of responsibility early in my career. Had a really great time at Simon Kucher. And then six years in, I was getting the itch to work with earlier stage companies. So companies that would move faster, where you maybe don't spend six months debating whether to do a thing that might take you then a year to go do. And so kind of got in the right place at the right time with OpenView. There was a role open to support portfolio companies with growth and go-to-market strategy. So took that on, and now it's been seven years later, and and I'm a partner leading growth and marketing at the firm. I don't know if OpenView actually coined the term product-led growth, but certainly has evangelized the crap out of it. Like I I think whatever I think product-led growth, I think of OpenView. And so describe in the easiest way possible, what would you say product-led growth is? My colleague, Blake, did coin the term. He obviously didn't like invent the concept. We were observing things that other companies were doing. They just were calling it, you know, bottom up, B2C to B, freemium, you know, consumerization of IT. There are a lot of different terms and concepts. And so we created a term for what these companies were doing and then tried to build a set of frameworks for how other folks could take advantage of it. But when we think about product-led growth, it's about thinking about the product as a driver of customer expansion or customer acquisition, conversion, and expansion. And so it's pretty broad-based. Now, obviously, there's a continuum there, right, from not product-led at all to 100% product-led. Most folks, I think, are going to find themselves somewhere in the middle. But it doesn't mean you have, you know, 100% self-serve purchases, right, with no sales reps. It means that you're looking for things that would normally be done in a really manual and resource-intensive way. And you're looking to turn those into automated product-based solutions that drive a better customer experience and more efficiency. And so in an ideal world, PLG companies can grow faster as they scale, and they can actually become much more efficient businesses in the long run. So if a founder comes to you and says, hey, I want to do PLG, help me make that happen. What do you say to them? Are there a couple areas that you're like, hey, this is what you need to focus on? How should they approach what is a very broad topic, but you know, needs to actually end up in tactical things for them to execute upon? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. A lot of folks look to some of the success cases and it's like, I'm inspired by you know the slacks of the world, sneak, notion. I want to be like that. Help me do product-led growth. And then very quickly, it becomes a conversation about what does product-led growth mean for their specific product set of goals and types of customers that they're selling into. And so try to understand the why. What is their motivation for moving towards PLG? Is it an internal motivation? Is it an external customer motivation? Is it an offensive play? Is it a defensive play, for example, right? What's their commitment level, right? Is this something that has 
the support from the executive team and the board? Or is this something that is more of an interest or an experiment? I really actually try to discourage folks from going down the path of PLG in a lot of cases because it's a long journey. It might take 12 to 18 months before you start to really see results from it. It's not the nearest term thing that you can do to your business that's going to drive faster growth and more efficiency. And if anything, you're kind of building two motions at once during that transition period. So there's a transition period of inefficiency that folks should be mindful of. Uh, so start by discouraging them. And if they're still motivated and interested, I then try to center in on the first KPI that's going to be most important for us to influence through PLG. And that looks very different at different companies. So at you know, a company at scale, they might have a lot of customers in the platform, but they have a new product they're monetizing. AI-based products, Gen AI products are maybe a good example. Then they want to use PLG as a way to drive kind of trial, positive user experience, user feedback, and ultimately more revenue from their users through these new products in a way that they maybe would have a hard time doing at scale with just their sales and CS team. So expansion is one opportunity, but another route is saying, hey, we want to unlock the SMB segment and that, that individual user or kind of prosumer user base, or we want to drive efficiencies in our sales motion, or really we just, it's really hard for us to attract kind of top of funnel and pipeline. And we want to find ways to you know get more people to try out our product experience, how we're different. And so center in on what is that number one KPI to influence And then I try to think about what is the shortest way to be able to prove value that this thesis around PLG works and that unlocks future steps, right? I don't think it tends to make sense for companies to jump straight to a freemium and self-service opportunity as the first step for PLG. That's going to take a long time to go build into. There's going to be a lot of risks and unknowns. You have a way to use marketing to attract users rather than just executive buyers. You're not going to have a way to have full confidence that your product experience is ready for self-service, right? And so I'd rather find shorter term, smaller things that you can do to prove out that it works and to get feedback from customers as fast as possible. And ultimately, that's one of the reasons why top PLG companies are so successful is their ability to rapidly iterate and experiment and use product data as a way to go after the right customer profile at the right time and expand the best fit customers. So there's a couple of questions I want to ask off of that. So one, have you seen any companies that haven't started PLG successfully make the transition to doing PLG? I have, as people probably know, it's harder to layer on PLG if that's not where you started from, but it's not impossible. HubSpot is probably the classic example of a company that did this well. For people that maybe think of HubSpot today as a very product-led business, and there's so much success that they've had, they created a category, inbound marketing. They did an amazing job at writing blog content, getting people to download eBooks, right? Not jump into the product. And they would have an SDR team go call on all the people that downloaded eBooks, and then a sales team that would go close those deals. And they've moved to now a much more PLG-heavy motion It started with a new product line that they built for, which was HubSpot for sales folks and more CRM-like products rather than, you know, disrupting their core product first. But they found success with HubSpot for sales, and then they took a lot of those learnings and that DNA and applied them into all of their product capabilities. 
So HubSpot is one that I really look to as that North Star. But then there's a number of other folks that have had varying degrees of success with it. OutSystems is one in the low-code, no-code space. And they've been around for, I don't know how long, 20 years or so, more than 20 years maybe. And so for a company like that to pivot pretty hard towards a PLG motion that late in their history shows that it's possible for that five-year-old or 10-year-old SaaS company as well. And one thing you mentioned, which actually is pretty interesting to me, because I think everybody who says PLG immediately goes to self-service. They're just like, oh, if we're doing PLG, they need to just be able to try out the product right from our website, right? You said, actually, that's not what I recommend people focus on or even jump into from the beginning. So from that perspective, then, what is the first steps? And I know it'll differ by company, but if you can kind of generalize, like if it's not self-serve, right, what's the first step before that? Yes. Oh, to me, there's a difference between self-serve purchasing, which is where people are swiping credit card, you know, buying via self-service and self-service onboarding, where people or anyone can go to your website and sign up for the product and start to find value in it without talking to a sales rep. So I do recommend building for that self-service onboarding. I just don't think that companies need to go all the way down the path of self-service purchasing just yet. And in fact, a better North Star KPI for the PLG motion, my mind is product influence revenue or product driven revenue. How much of additional revenue that you're generating started with a meaningful product interaction before involving a sales rep. And you can apply that both to expansion with in-app trials, right, of new products, as well as new customer acquisition. One of the reasons I like that more is that self-service is really just, you know, a mechanism for your customers to buy. You're going to have some customers that maybe don't want to talk to a rep or where it's not very profitable for you to layer in a rep. And so self-service purchasing might allow you to unlock some of those smaller deal sizes or, or land folks that add some incrementality to the business. But if you look at really the best PLG companies out there, it's not a majority of the revenue that self-serve, even in the best PLG companies. That's very rare. And generally, people are maybe starting with self-service onboarding. There might be some self-serve purchasing, but more often than not, people are looking at product usage activity as a way to identify product-qualified accounts for sales to then reach out to, work with, and navigate to where the ultimate you know, decision-maker is and where the deeper pockets are. Got it. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about before we actually jump into some of the PQLs and the sales stuff, because there's a lot of interesting stuff there that I want to talk about, but it's the single player versus multiplayer use case, right? So on one hand, you have Slack multiplayer use case. By all accounts, everyone would say that would be PLG. And then, you know, you also have a great write-up on Hotjar, and that could maybe be classified more as single player. And so when founders ask you, like, is that something that you look at of saying, hey, you know what? You have a single player use case, great. Like, let's go PLG versus maybe if it's more multiplayer, hey, here's a different way to think about it. Or how do you address those sort of use cases? PLG models are like extremely attractive if you have a single player use case where there's value for even that individual user, right? Which then is the motivation that leads them to get started, find value, start buying. So if you have a single player use case and your user is the buyer who has access to budget, that's an amazing business model, generally speaking, at least as a starting point for PLG. But when you kind of look at some of these businesses, and Calendly is maybe a good example, right? They have a single player use case, 
it was a collaborative product, but a single player use case where if you're busy, you want someone to schedule via your Calendly link rather than back and forth over email, you start using Calendly, you sign up and you get value as an individual, although you are asking someone else to help unlock that value. But then what you tend to find with these kinds of PLG businesses is that you want to go from that individual use, that single player mode to multiplayer mode as quickly as possible. And so it's great if you have both value propositions, but either way, you're trying to actually get to the multiplayer mode. And one of the big mistakes that I find PLG companies making is that they have kind of pricing and product experiences that block any sort of collaboration where it's really just single player mode only, and they can't go from user to team to company-wide without a lot of friction. Even like ChatGPT, they're professional plan is, you know, $20 per month. It's single player mode only. They are launching a business plan now, which I think is a great idea and and something that will ultimately be where probably the bulk of the revenue comes from. But the single player mode is an on-ramp to multiplayer mode. And so I always actually think about it where if you're a company, whether you have a single player mode value prop or a multiplayer mode value prop, you should have different milestones based on product activity around activation that are both single player mode activation, which is like you've demonstrated initial value, and then a multiplayer mode activation, which is naturally going to have a lot more drop off from the single player mode, but where you have better indications that this is a much higher value opportunity with that customer. And so, yeah, then speaking to your point around the multiplayer mode companies, What is great for them is that they are starting collaborative first and they don't fall down this trap of being like, you know, a prosumer or single player mode only business. So it's harder to get folks to activate. You tend to have a lower rate rate of activation. It takes longer for people to see value, but there's a lot more expansion opportunity and a lot more revenue opportunity to unlock with those businesses. So you just kind of have to get comfortable with your funnel looking different from a Notion or a Canva funnel because it's still going to be a healthy business model. It's just not going to look like the same exact customer experience. I want to ask you actually about that. You mentioned a pricing piece there where you were saying, hey, if you're starting with a single player use case, you want to go to multiplayer, but you don't want to have pricing be a blocker to that, right? And so maybe, I actually don't know how Notion prices, but we could use whatever example you want. But for example, let's just, I'm just making up Notion. Like, let's say they did a per seat license, right? Is that what you mean by like, that would be a blocker? Because if you're trying to add the next user, then all of a sudden for them to interact, you know, they would need to pay to get on. And so that's kind of a buried entry versus saying, I don't know, some sort of usage-based thing or retention policy or something like that. Like maybe if you have an example, that would be great. There's multiple levels of friction. So in Notion's case, they actually used to have a $4 per user plan called their personal pro plan that was a single user only mode plan. And so not only did they charge per user, but they had a package that a lot of people could buy that didn't allow you to even add a second user, even if you were willing to pay for it. So then if you wanted to start going into collaboration mode, you would have to change your plan and then pay additional prices per user, right? Canva also initially had a lot of pricing that really treated the product as like a prosumer product where it was really all about that individual user deciding whether to buy their own Canva license and not kind of extending Canva to their team. Now, 
they have much easier on-ramps to their team plan. I want to say even actually for Canva's latest Canva for Teams pricing that I've at least seen, they charge the same amount for Canva for Teams for one user as they do for Canva Pro. And then it's only, so it's 120 per year for both products for a single user. But for the Teams plan, it's $150 for up to five users. So it's only an extra $30 per year to invite four more people. It's like, well, yeah, that's a no-brainer. Of course I'm going to do that, right? And so that's an example, I think, of, of a company that used to create a lot of friction in going from single-player mode to multiplayer mode that still charges per seat, but they've made for a much smoother on-ramp. Other examples of companies that I think have done a decent job of this, Atlassian comes to mind. And so Atlassian used to have free trials of all of their products. And if you were using, say, Jira and you wanted to use Confluence, you'd have to get admin approval to spin up a time-limited trial of that product, and then you'd pay per seat at the end of that trial period. That made it actually really hard to expand into new products and to invite additional people. They moved almost all of their products to a model that was freemium for your first 10 users, right? First 10 free. So you start using the product in a collaborative way. These are collaborative products. You try them in multiplayer mode for free, and then you convert as your team is standardizing on the plans or as you're growing as a business. So even if you charge per user, I think that there's some creative things that you can do. Final example I'll just share, Miro's free plan is for unlimited users but has a fixed number of editable boards that can be active at any given point in time. And so that's a great way of being able to unlock the power of collaboration, which is a kind of key promise that Miro has. And then they still charge per user at the end of the day, but now you have at least a basis of users that are going to have found value and that you're going to want to license for. Let's take the Canva use case. You mentioned 120 versus 150. That's $30 versus if you're charging 120 per user, I mean, obviously you'd make a ton more money, right? So, you, you know, you're so-called leaving money on the table by only charging $30 more to add four more users on. So clearly there's something that they're doing, right? Or seeing to make that happen. So maybe talk us through, I'm assuming they're instrumenting the product to see what the usage is looking like. And then it expands to like a business plan much more quickly by, by having the pricing like that. And that's the justification for them doing that. I'm assuming that's why, but like maybe if you have more insights, kind of talk through what you think, or at least your hypothesis or whatever about why they're doing that. So when I think about PLG products, even if they charge per seat, I didn't talk too much about this, but I'm a fan of folks that are pretty generous on seats and charge on the basis of usage or other metrics. But for folks that charge per seat, a lot of times they're able to unlock a significantly higher price per seat when they're selling enterprise plans or plans for you know, large departments than if they're charging for individual user or team-based plans. And so that's when you look at Canva's model and you're like, wait, you're charging less per user as you have our users like, what's going on here? What I think of as the dynamic is that, let's say you decide to start bringing Canva into Bold Start. You start using it maybe for software snack bites, you make your podcast image on it, you maybe make some social images to support you know, publicity around the podcast. What's your motivation for inviting other people at Bold Start in? You're a senior, so you might naturally see that and think business first. But if you were maybe a marketing manager or just some, an individual on the investment team, that means that there's additional budget approvals you have to go through, additional hassle 
it's not making your life all that much better. In fact, it's making your life more complicated. All of a sudden, there's maybe going to be more scrutiny on whether Canva is the best tool in the business and like what's the shadow IT thing in our environment, right? It's actually painful for the user to go and share the product with other folks. They're really sticking their neck out, right? I think that that's where Canva's pricing is smart in that it really tries to change this mindset and the behavior by changing the way they price to really incentivize folks to think team first. I think there's an aha moment as you start using the product as a team because one person on your team can put together a template that someone else can go repurpose. You can add your logos, your colors, your everything, and then anyone else can have access to it. If you build a design, someone else can go edit that or comment on it to make it better. Like there's a lot of goodness for using the product as a team, but you would never experience that if you were (laughs) self-centered and really hesitant to get that kind of like budget sign off on inviting other people in. Yeah, that makes sense. And we mentioned Atlassian there as well. I believe that's the reverse free trial, if I'm correct. Maybe I'm not correct in the definition, but I know you're a fan of that. You've written about it. There's a great post, I'm sure multiple great posts, but especially one in particular that's awesome about it. Talk about why you're a big fan of reverse free trials. All the buzzwords I'm a fan of. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, so, we got to have them, you know? <laughs> yeah, we, we love them in SaaS. So just for context for folks on a reverse free trial, so usually in PLG products, we think about there should be an ability to try the product before you buy it. And then we start to go down the path of, all right, I can go freemium, which tends to mean free forever, but with limited features so that there's a reason for people to upgrade. There's paywalls built in where you say, hey, now I need to start buying this thing. Or there's a free trial, which is free for a limited period of time, normally 14 days, but a pretty generous product experience where people can really take advantage of just about all that you have to offer and then have to decide whether to buy With a reverse free trial, and Elena Varina, by the way, has done amazing writing on it, so even better stuff by far than I have. With a reverse free trial, you land someone in that free trial experience, and then at the end of that 14 days, you downgrade them to a limited free forever version. And what's great about that is you're able to balance the best of both worlds in terms of acquisition and monetization. So with that kind of experience, you put your best foot forward with new users, you show them the best of what your product can do, which then benefits from loss aversion, right? People hate things being taken away from them once they've experienced the value. And they value something much more strongly after they've experienced it than if they've never experienced it in the first place. So that loss aversion phenomenon is really phenomenal. And it's also something that people don't know what your product can do unless they've tried it out. And a lot of times... If you don't have something available in that free plan, they might just think that you have a bad product, right? Or your product was built for simple use cases and wasn't built for an enterprise use case. And so you actually want to put your best foot forward with these high value customers so that they can experience the best of what you have to offer. And then that time limit gives you a really strong monetization push, right? Countdown clock is on, people have to use it or they're going to lose these features. And then it's a really clear time when people know, hey, now is the time I have to pull out my credit card and buy this thing. I'm seeing value in it. Normally for free products that are more freemium, the time to convert is longer. Conversion rates are lower than a free trial, right? There's no urgency involved. And the final thing that I would say that I like about this model is that if someone doesn't buy upon that time limit, you don't lose them entirely. They can keep coming back to the product, maybe hit a, a usage paywall, they can hit a call to action in the product, they can trip a feature paywall. 
and they can decide to buy later on. But keeping their data with you, you can keep sending them nurture emails. You can maybe have sales reach out if it's a relevant customer. You can do great marketing to them. There's a lot of value in having that bigger user base, that bigger base of the pyramid that you can keep converting over time. Where would that something like that fail? And I'm assuming the simple answer is just those so-called premium features that you have just aren't really that great and, and the users don't see value in it. And then maybe that's actually a learning opportunity for the business to be like, wow, what I thought I would price on and what I thought I would monetize, actually the users are telling me that's not the case. Do you ever see reverse trials failing anywhere? There's a lot to like about it, but you don't actually see very many companies successfully launching reverse trials. I don't know what percentage of software companies have a reverse trial right now, but I think it's probably less than 10%. It's still a pretty early phenomenon. And I think the reasons why it's challenging is that some of your pro features are things that once someone's used, it is actually very hard to take it away. Let's say SSO is part of your pro plan and someone set up SSO and now you're like, all right, this is gone. Well, yeah, that's yeah. You know, not the best experience, right? So there's challenges around defining that product experience for the trial if you don't have it already. There's also, I think, generally an underinvestment in engineering for PLG and free experiences is if you have enterprises asking for certain features that they're willing to pay for or things that are part of your product vision of where you want to go to, those tend to be the things that you build before you go to those experimental PLG bets. So just there's not a lot of engineering resources to support PLG. That's another reason. And I think the final thing that I would say of what reasons why this would fail or just not get off the ground in the first place is that for a number of the features in your pro plan, it takes a longer period of time before someone starts to find value in them because they have to do a lot of setup and a lot of work to get to that point. And so if your product doesn't have a great enough user experience where people are getting to that point of value relatively quickly, they'll just never experience the difference between your freemium offering and your free trial. And so it really won't make much of a difference either way. Yeah. I want to switch into the sales side of things. So we have a number of terms that exist in this area, sales assist, product-led sales, all sorts of things. I think I first want to start off with product-led sales. And one question is, can you have product-led sales without PLG? And then the second question is, how does product-led sales work? I actually do think you can do product-led sales. Well, without classic PLG, I guess it would still be in that PLG continuum, right? From zero to 100%, you're somewhere in that continuum, even if you don't see yourselves as PLG. Some examples that come to mind for me, we have portfolio companies that don't have some any sort of like freemium or free trial experience, but they know that their product has an amazing user experience. They know that once you can get in the hands of users, they can feel the difference between the product and other products that are out there on the market. And so they actually want to push to a proof of concept as soon as possible. And they want to actually set KPIs in that POC as user surveys or user feedback for product A versus product B. I would think about that as like a product-led sales experience of using your product as part of the sales motion to generate kind of excitement and competitive differentiation. Other examples of doing this would be on-demand demo experiences or interactive product tours where you might not be able to sign up for a product self-serve. There might be too much complexity around the setup process, but you can set up a pretty 
customized version of your product that users can kind of click around into, play around with, feel like they're using the product, but without having to do any setup entirely. And use that even on your website as a way to generate very highly qualified leads and as a way to accelerate the sales cycle because you're now demoing to people who've already seen the product, already understand how it's valuable. And so you're starting from step two instead of step one in that process. And you tend to find that these customers convert at a higher rate because they are some level of product qualified before talking to sales. So there's definitely opportunities to think about product as a kind of tool in your sales arsenal. And then more broadly speaking, when I think about product-led sales, and I don't know, I think there is an official definition somewhere, but I will blank on what it actually is. You're going to have to create one just like product-led growth. So let's hear yeah. it. You know, this is, this is it. News is happening right now. In my mind, yeah, product-led sales is getting signals on product usage from users and letting that inform who you sell to and how you sell to that customer. And so it can take a variety of forms. One is having a freemium product, looking at signals of someone has buying intent or is ready to buy, and then tailoring your sales plays to those exact customers as a way to prioritize your leads. But there can be a lot of other approaches too. We have a portfolio company in the workforce management space that found that if a customer set up their first schedule with the product, they had a way higher chance of converting than if they hadn't. And so everything in the product is about setting up your first schedule, but they'd also have marketing emails about setting up your first schedule, or you could even send your existing schedule, maybe as an Excel file or a photo of a napkin, (laughs) if that's all you have, and someone will set it up on your behalf. So then you can actually experience that aha moment for yourself. And so that's kind of a product-led sales tactic of having that product experience, create an aha moment for your prospects, and then being able to come in and sell in a way that's more consultative because you're working towards a shared outcome. Like you've already shown that your product can do what you say it does, and then it can add value for them. Now you just have to navigate what are the blockers that get to making a decision or get to unlocking spend and work with that prospect towards a shared outcome. Where does something like sales assist differ from product-led sales. These are all buzzwords at this point. So I, you know, we have a lot of things, but I, I know there's a reason why we specifically say it. So what is the reason for having sales assist separate than product-led sales? Yeah. I mean, my take for what it's worth is that product-led sales is the broader concept of using this kind of product information and putting your product in front of users as a tool in the sales process. And sales assist generally refers to more of a specific role on the team or type of person that you hire and what they do, right? And so sometimes these are called product specialists, sometimes they're onboarding specialists, sometimes they're even just SDRs. And the sales assist folks are working with existing product users and essentially trying to turn those product users into pipeline that AEs then close. And the way they do that, you know, because these are people that are using the product. It's not cold calling someone and saying, hey, I'd love to talk to you about the value of automation in your business. It's like, if you're Zapier, you're already using Zapier, like that cold call is just going to make no sense. It's, oh, hey, we saw that you set up X and Y integration. Customers that do this tend to also actually want to take advantage of us to do whatever and love to hop on a quick call to show you more. And then you hop on that call 
And then you ask, hey, are there other team members that would benefit from Zapier? Or, hey, what are the other tools in your marketing tech stack? I'd love to show you some ways that you can even accelerate what you're doing based on customers A, B, and C. So you're leading with value. It's more of a customer success mindset, working with these existing product users. But the goal is ultimately to create enterprise pipeline or kind of large business pipeline that you can then push to an AE. It's just recognizing that the best way to do that often isn't to lead with the commercial interaction, but to lead with more of this assistance and customer experience first mindset. Yeah, that's the, I think Atlassian had a, a model that they called like everyone customer advocates or something. So there's a story about yeah, and the enterprise advocates. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a story that, you know, everyone says like, oh, Atlassian had never had sales, you know, up until X amount of ARR. And it's like, well, you know, it depends on how you describe sales, I guess. But I uh, know there's so many terms for these. You don't see it even called sales assist that much. Everyone kind of has their own spin on it. HubSpot, I think, calls them inbound specialists or inbound consultants. Like there's just a million terms for it. I love it. Well, so in order for sales to work, we obviously need to have leads coming in, right? And we need to have lots of them to come in to convert to paid users. And so, I mean, there's so many things to talk about in regards to marketing uh, that it gets a little bit hard to see where to focus. But I think you had a great post in Lenny's blog, actually, that we'll link to in the, in the show notes. I guess broadly, in my mind, there's like product virality, there's organic reach, there's paid marketing, there's SEO, there's all these sort of areas. Like, I'm going to ask you a very general question here of how do you distill <laughs> like what's important for founders to focus on? Because I think a lot of founders will read this content and honestly, just it, it scares them, right? Because they're seeing all these things and how are we supposed to do this? And we're also supposed to just build the product and iterate with our customers. But then you're telling us that SEO optimize this landing page. And then also we need to be creating various content over here and stuff like that. Like, what will you say to founders from the marketing side to help them? Can definitely get overwhelming. The way that I would unpack this is that in PLG companies, there's normally product-led marketing, which is generally about marketing to attract a high volume of users to sign up for and try your product. That is normally the starting point. But then at scale, as you have a base of users, it tends to be more either enterprise-oriented marketing or account-based marketing to a set of target accounts, many of which have existing product users, but to help get kind of awareness and interest from decision makers at those accounts in order to generate pipeline for the sales team. And so that is what tends to get layered on afterwards as you have that base of existing users. So I'll start with the product-led marketing because I think that is the core building block or of course kind of foundational piece to get right in the earlier stages. And so product-led marketing, I guess let me start with like what it's not or like how to not do it. So traditional marketing, right, for SaaS, we normally think about doing webinars, trade shows, having outbound, you know, cold calls, cold emails to folks. It is very high touch. It is very expensive cost per acquisition. Steak dinners and golfing trips, you know. <laughs> I haven't been on one yet, but I'm waiting for that for one of these high-powered SDRs. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what's in people's head about how to market a SaaS product, right? But it's very high cost of acquisition. Because it's so high cost of acquisition, you have to target it at a really, really small group of your target audience, your perfect ICP to drive any efficiency in that motion. 
you kind of have to turn that on its head when you think about product-led marketing. And so for product-led marketing, you're looking for ways to scalably reach your users in their moment of need for the product. And that's generally much more mass market, looks more like B2C marketing. And it's user-focused rather than buyer-focused. And the goal is to find pockets where you have a large audience of people that would benefit from your product. And then also the intent from that audience, right? So if you go and market on Instagram where people are on their phones to try to use Webflow, as an example, they're probably not ready to build a new website when they're on Instagram, right? And so there might be the audience on Instagram, but they don't have the intent. And so you're trying to constantly marry those two things. And there's a role for paid marketing, right? You know, whether that's LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, roles for influencers and affiliate marketing, there's roles for SEO and organic search and content. There's roles for kind of community-based marketing and driving referrals and word of mouth. And there's also room for product viral loops or free products built with marketing intent. So there's a lot of different ways of doing it, but the idea is scale, user first, high intent. And then when you start to unpack that and look at trends across some of the best BLG companies, they tend to almost always have some sort of organic search play that organic search is generally not like editorial based. So they're not writing blog posts X number of times a week and using that as their main way of attracting users. There is a role for that. And that certainly is a part of that at scale uh, revenue generation, but they tend to be looking for more of a programmatic SEO play where they're taking, whether it's templates, landing pages, or some sort of user-granted content opportunity as a way to reach a large set of users based on the really specific job that that user is hiring the company to do. I think Sneak is a great example. You probably know the Sneak story better than I do with you know Sneak Advisor or Sneak's vulnerability database. One example I just think is great is in safety culture, which is software for businesses that involve a lot of safety inspections. So you might think manufacturing, restaurants, construction, right? And they have a library of 100,000 safety inspection checklists that can be really, really specific for ISO XYZ certification daily checklist. And they're going to build landing pages around those checklists that don't need actually that much content, just kind of core building blocks of content, which you can even build programmatically through your engineering team, or maybe even nowadays through ChatGPT. And then something of value for the user. So in their case, you actually can land on the checklist itself. You can go print it out and use it day to day if you want to. It would still be marketing for safety culture. Or you can start filling it out digitally, and then you're going to want to save it. And you want to save it because you need to fill these out on a regular basis, or you need to send them to a team member to fill out. And you want to have a record that you filled them out, right? So you start going from landing on that landing page based on a really specific thing that you're trying to do. And then you're all of a sudden using the product, you're creating an account, and then you're naturally going to buy because it's solving your problem. So it's a very kind of frictionless journey for the user. And experiences like that are harder to build out, right? They tend to involve product and engineering resources. But I guess the way to think of it is like building products with marketing intent rather than building a product and then sending that off to marketing to go figure out how to get users for it. Yeah. One thing I'm curious to get your viewpoint on is 
from at least my side, right? I see on the developer tooling side, for example, it's like you have DevRel, you have a lot of content that either could one be directly related to your product, or it could actually be talking about something completely different, but that's just interesting from a technical perspective. And that can be really helpful to distance yourself from the noise. And in security, like you mentioned, Sneak with the vulnerability database, like in security, actually, those are almost like security researchers, because a lot of that stuff in terms of showing that you're exposing zero days or stuff like that gets people to think of your product and your brand and everything as something that's forward and on the edge of things. When you think about something though, like CRMs or writing tools or things like that, right? Note-taking apps, things like that. How do you map that to, I mean, I think like Amplitude, for example, had John Cutler, Cuttlefish or something like that as the product evangelist, right? Like, is that something that you think we're going to see more often in the future with these companies or from the SaaS side of things, like does that same targeted content approach matter as much as we see on kind of the more info side? I think we're still a bit in the early innings. That said, it's a broader trend is that we're building for users, right? And we're demonstrating value for users. Oftentimes users can do some level of customization, create things of value. They get excited about what they've created, right? They've been able to do that for free. And so they feel a lot of goodwill for this company that they've been working with. And when all that happens, these users become an extension of the brand. They talk about your product on social media, they share it with friends, they share it in private communities. And so you can actually play a role of kind of finding these power users, these influencers within your user base and helping provide them with tools or a microphone to go you know, evangelize what they've been doing. And you often want someone that is like a community advocate who really is kind of can nerd out about the product with these folks. You want that kind of person who resonates with your user base being front and center with your users in these interactions, because that's what makes it authentic, what makes it real. They really empathize with the user and the user sees himself in this person in your company. Sometimes that is the founder or one of the founders plays that role, but other times you can hire people. Sometimes you can even hire one of your power users to then play this role at your company. I think of that product evangelist as a kind of an extension of the community efforts, and it's not a requirement, but especially if you have some sort of specialized tool that maybe involves some sort of technical skills, or if you're going after one specific persona, as opposed to a mass market product, having that person be kind of the front and center face of your brand can be very helpful. The final thing I'd just say is one thing I've noticed being in the VC world, right, is that people are trusting people and responding to other people more so than responding to brands right now. I think there's something about like craving authenticity in a world in which like it's unclear what was written by AI and what was actually like an authentic point of view. There's also just so much like content and so much noise out there that we want people that we can connect to, we can relate to, we can empathize with, right? And so if you look at OpenView, for example, we have a blog that we've been writing for a while. We have a newsletter we've been putting out every single Saturday for years now. But, and that's still popular, still part of our marketing. That's not where growth is though, from our marketing and our reach. Where growth comes from is actually the personal brands of partners or other people at the firm, writing on Substack, posting on LinkedIn, making a PLG video series. Those are things that are just growing at exponential rate. And I think that 
part of that is because of this personal brand phenomenon and this product specialist or product evangelist type of role can be this like personal brand for your software company to really take advantage of these trends that are happening in the market right now. That's so interesting that you say that because I mean, I've been a big fan of the OpenView blog content for a long time, especially all the PLG benchmarks and things like that, that gets put out. But usually it's like more so these broader reports, right? It's like a large, big thing of like, here's the 2022 benchmarking report or stuff like that. But meanwhile, it's like, I listen to Blake's Builds podcast. I read your Growth Unhinged host, you know, I think now it's like two or three times a week, honestly, like that I'm reading it, you know, it's like, and that's how I interact with it. And I sometimes actually forget that you're right, that OpenView as the blog, but I'm just subscribed to your thing. I get to ask you direct questions. And that's a lot more exciting to me than, than, you know, reading something that's a larger report or something. I'm not sure who to reach out to or say, Hey, this was awesome. Or let's chat more about it. So that resonates a lot, especially with that example. Yeah, the average software company really struggles to take advantage of that phenomenon. I can't tell you how many times I see an executive posting on LinkedIn and they like have the at to tag someone, but they don't actually tag someone because you can tell they just copy and pasted something from like what their PR person sent them. And like there's a lot of people trying to leverage this for, you know, company benefit, but just failing because you have to do it from a place of authenticity and vulnerability and you really have to put your perspectives out there and not make it about selling in that interaction. <laughs> I, I actually literally saw that. Uh, it, it was a LinkedIn <laughs> post that like someone had put and that was like at, you know, whatever. And I was like, wait a second, there, you can't click on it. Like it's like, so <laughs> <laughs> that is a telltale sign. <laughs> but uh, one thing I want to talk to you about in terms of PLG is, so we're talking about this high velocity, you know, usage-based stuff, a lot of just things happening, all that, kind of talks to, okay, we'll lower customer acquisition costs. But at the same thing, one thing that is really good for, you know, those golf trips and steak dinners and stuff like that is like the $10 million enterprise deal with name your large financial institution, right? Like they need the stakeholders to literally trust you that we're going to pay you a lot of money. Are you going to secure us? Are you going to, for our application layer, are you going to make sure everything works? Are you going to have uptime? All these sort of things. And so the question I have for you is, you need to really align the cost structures then for these PLG models where it's like, okay, great, your CAC is low, but at the same time, you may have higher churn, right? Because of the fact that you have people try it up, maybe they upgrade to paid, then they they don't see the value from it or something like that, and then they downgrade or something like that. So how should companies think about minimizing that churn and looking at that balance between, well, maybe actually higher churn is okay if we're acquiring them quick enough and for low enough cost, or versus like saying, hey, actually, let's start generating more revenue and focusing more efforts on stopping the leaky bucket. This is where we can come back to this even topic of like single player mode versus multiplayer mode. And when I look at PLG businesses that have a lot of maybe individual users on paid single user plans, a lot of times maybe they signed up on a Gmail or other free mail domain. Retention is maybe 50%. Over the first year, there's limited expansion opportunity because these are people that are using the product as like a prosumer or personal use case, or maybe it's a business use case, but it's a solo, a single person business. You tend to find pretty poor unit economics for those businesses because there's, there's just not a lot of expansion opportunities and there's a lot of churn. And as you scale, that churn just gets bigger and bigger, and it's harder to replace that with more and more new user signups. And so what I tend to find is 
there's still value in those folks. And they are ones who were, will be part of your community, who will be sharing your product, writing reviews, you know, being that really vocal advocacy base for your product. Also, you should expect some level of churn, but you should look at measuring the health of your business based on folks that have a business email domain or have a multi-user account. And that's the true signal of your recurring revenue. And honestly, that's a kind of, when you talk to investors, you might even want to separate out this centrally business revenue, and you can call it personal or consumer revenue, and then measure essentially the metrics attached to both of them. It'll be your way of being able to position your business model in a way that gets investors excited. And it splits out these different types of use cases. So yes, it will mean you're getting maybe credit for less revenue than you actually have, but you'll get credit for a much higher quality revenue. We tend to find that it has much higher retention rates, maybe more in the 75, 80, 85% logo retention rates, a lot of expansion opportunity, especially if your customers are starting off on a low dollar size amount, whether it's on a usage-based plan or a single user plan, they could expand into a massive paying customer. If anything, for these types of customers, you should even see north of 120, north of 125 net dollar retention because there should be so much expansion that should offset the churn that you're seeing. That would be my advice is just make sure the way you are measuring your customer base and then reporting on it to investors takes into account that some of these are just natural dynamics that happen in a PLG company. Kind of tied to that, if we tie the pricing to churn, I'm curious, like we've talked a lot about usage-based pricing. We haven't talked as much per se about seat-based. In one example, like you could say, hey, seat-based, it's pretty linear from a forecasting perspective. I mean, Salesforce has built a pretty large business just selling seats, right? And you understand what that's going to look like. You can sell against it. You can expand those seat counts, things like that. And then meanwhile, you have something like we're seeing it with Snowflake, where it's like all of a sudden optimization happens. And then the next quarter, it's like, whoa, what just happened, right? Everything just change for the company. And so it's a little bit more roller coaster versus the kind of linear path to it. How should people be thinking about that? I think most of the time when we think PLG, we think usage-based. Does seat-based still work? And from a churn perspective, could that actually be helpful in terms of mitigating some of that churn? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it is tough because I also work with a number of companies that have seat-based revenue models. And while there was some insulation from the economic environment, they're very susceptible to headcount changes, right? So if headcount shrinks or if it stops increasing at the rate that you'd expect, all of a sudden net retention can go from 140 down to 100% or less. And it can be not because you're delivering any less value to your customers, it can just be natural based on the economic environment. So there's challenges with both models. I guess when I look at companies right now, I'm seeing a trend towards more hybrid pricing so folks are typically not just usage-based or pay-as-you-go, and they're not just seat-based and subscription-based. There's some sort of combination there. And that's probably the most resilient model that you can come up with. The challenge is how do you define that in a way that can be a simple way to communicate pricing to your customers, can feel like a good customer experience. But if you look at, say, a GitHub, for example, they will charge on a seat-based, like per developer basis for their core product, but then they have a lot of add-on products, which is where the expansion revenue is going to come from. And those expansion products are licensed on a usage basis, which makes them much easier for customers to try out. They also might only be generating value for a small portion of the overall people 
you know, among the seats that are licensed, but those folks see a lot of value in it. So it just wouldn't really make sense to monetize it on a seat basis. Or if you look at adding ChatGPT or other capabilities to your product, you might also find that there are costs associated with usage activity that you want to make sure you're covering because those could be extremely high costs for a power user or zero costs for a user that never actually unlocks those. And you want to make sure that you're able to be in a good spot in terms of customer adoption and that you're also able to monetize as they see additional value from products. So I guess that'd be my long-winded way of saying we're in a much more complex hybrid pricing environment these days. Would you recommend more companies approach the core platform as a seat-based approach? Because I think as you're talking about, I'm kind of thinking about like Datadog has the per host pricing, right? Kind of seat-based, if you want to call it that. I think CrowdStrike has something similar, but then has modules that are layered on top that are a bit more usage-based. Seems like those are working very well for these companies. Like, is that something that you think we'll see more of or you suggest to companies or how do you think about that? I wish I could have a one-size-fits-all answer. There's not one trend in the market right now of like, this is the best pricing model for you. If I reflect on like what folks should think about, it should be finding what metrics correspond with the value that your customers see from using the product and what tends to create the best customer experience to deliver value and be able to land and expand. And so if you look at your business and you say, hey, look, like we're HubSpot, we're a marketing automation platform. There's some value in that second user, that third user, that fourth user logging in, but really like the bulk of the value comes from that first person, that HubSpot admin persona, who's going to be managing the data of HubSpot, setting up email campaigns, setting up landing pages and so on. If they charge per seat, they're gonna really cap the monetization opportunity inside of an account. And they're also gonna kind of create an incentive for bad behavior within customers around, whether it's license sharing or just carving out who has licenses to a really small group of people, which then minimizes the number of champions inside an organization. And so if your product is like HubSpot, where value is not at an individual level, it's more at a company level, that you want to try to avoid monetizing too heavily on seats. And so on the flip side, if you do deliver value for each and every individual using the product, and if there's a lot of sort of natural pull to bring more users into an account, then seat-based monetization can be a really fantastic way of, of monetizing. It's predictable for your customers. They know how to budget for it. A lot of times, you know, your target customer is going to be growing, and so you'll sort of naturally have some tailwinds associated with ongoing expansion. And so you really want to unpack those dynamics of sort of value and, and customer experience and how it's specific for the product that you're building. So final question I, I want to ask you before we wrap things up is, let's say founder comes to you. Listen, Kyle, I just listened to the Software Snack Bites podcast that you did. I learned a ton. I'm going full on PLG. And so I'm going to do reverse trial. I'm going to have usage-based pricing. I'm going to have a hybrid model from the beginning. I'm already thinking about like landing pages and SEO optimizations and all these sort of things, right? And then it's just like, you know, I need to raise $10 million because I need to have a data analyst. I need to have a content person and I need to have somebody working on the billing engine to make sure that the hybrid model works and the pricing works and all that sort of stuff. How would you talk to that founder and be like, well, I get it. Yes, those are all great things to do, but you're not going to get anywhere by doing all these things. How do you get them to focus? What would you tell them to focus on? 
you tend to have a roadmap for these things, just like you have a roadmap in product where there's might probably a thousand things you want to build, but that doesn't mean you have the capability to do it. You want to generate all of those ideas and make sure you've really been thoughtful of all the opportunities and then have a system for prioritizing those ideas and then executing quickly, learning from those results, doubling down on what works. My recommendation is generally to start with a clear understanding of your customer journey and how the funnel looks like for your product. Is the rate limiting factor on your business acquisition? Is it conversion to the funnel? Is it time to close? Is it the dollar size of how much your customers are spending? Like, Where is the biggest rate limiter today that's going to stop you from being able to 3x, 5x, 10x your business? And then really start with applying these concepts to that part of the experience and look for ways that you can take these principles that we've talked about and what's the V1 that you can launch really quickly, probably before you're comfortable, that you can get learnings from before you double down on it. And so we do this a lot at OpenView with our marketing. One of the things we launched recently was a cohort-based program for founders to learn how to do PLG. And it's an 11-session sort of program with a lot of founder matchmaking and so on. I think that's called Mastermind, right? Mastermind, exactly. And that was something that we launched in a month. We did not have all the speakers lined up. We did not have a fancy website for it. Like It was something where we had enough feedback and learnings that this would be really influential for solving kind of a key pain point in our founder journey with OpenView and helping folks decide how to implement PLG for their business. And we launched a V1 quickly and we keep adding to it over time so that founders even feel like there's more value, you know, in joining for session two and then more value when they join in session three. It's almost like a mentality, right, of taking how a growth team works around optimizing product experiences to generate faster growth and reduce friction, but taking that mindset and really applying it across all aspects of the business. I love that. And for founders, you know, just get your V1 out there, start learning from your end users, and then you'll be able to figure it out over time. But Kyle, thanks so much for the time. We covered a lot of deeply tactical things, and I know it's hard to do, and you just did a great job of relating them to companies so folks can understand it. If people would like to get in touch, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Connect with me on LinkedIn. That's probably the easiest. I put out content couple times a week and pretty active. So drop into my DMs if you'd like, and then subscribe to my newsletter on Substack. We will definitely link to Growth Unhinged. Huge fan. Can't say enough about it. All these learnings that we just talked about are in detail with case studies with specific companies. And frankly, I think you have in your mind, like we need chat GPT to kind of extract from Kyle's mind, like <laughs> the knowledge, the learnings you have from all these people you're interviewing, the tactics, the things. It's really extraordinary. So thanks for putting it out into the world. I'm a big fan. I know founders who subscribe that get a lot of value. And so thanks for doing it. Appreciate that. I'm constantly learning and I'm very fortunate that enough people are willing to share their insights with me. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Mike.